0: I want to just come in and understand what the bottlenecks for growth in the company are and what I can do to solve them. So I approached it as very much as a generalist with a founder mindset, which is I don't really care, you know, what the job description is. My goal is to come in and understand, you know, what's working, what's not working, what's the next bottleneck for growth in the company.
1: You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing, My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Paris Talks Marketing. And today I'm with Sandia Hegde, who is with Unusual VC, which is one of the, the more interesting VCs that we've come across. And Hegde has a really interesting background. Uh, prior prior to being a general partner at Unusual Ventures, where, where she's been for about a year, she's, she, she was at Amplitude for about five years. And during this period, oversaw really explosive growth at Amplitude, about 50x growth in in just over four years. Now she's a general partner at the VC Fund Unusual Ventures, and she's leading the enterprise application investment practice, where she's focused on new age SaaS for go-to-market and operations, also tools for product builders, and platforms for data and machine learning. So that is extremely interesting stuff. Uh, and welcome to the show, Sandia.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Paris. I'm really excited to spend this time with you and talk about all things product-led growth.
1: Yeah. I think your journey is really interesting, and it's very clear that the experience that you got in Amplitude really, I think, paved the way for where, where you are now in advising these early-stage startups. Can we start by uh, just describing a little bit about that experience with Amplitude? Because you were really... Uh, you oversaw such a tremendous growth there. And then what were the takeaways and the learnings that that uh, propelled you into your VC career now?
0: Great. Yeah. We're recording for like at least three hours, right? <laughs> maybe uh, you can oh, give no, me the
1: medium-length version. Uh, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you the TLDR. Um, so first of all, like I have to start with like why I joined Amplitude in the first place. So I was in venture before Amplitude as well. And one of the things I was observing was that, and this was, you know, during the time when the mobile application ecosystem was starting to really explode, right? So the app store had been around for a while and people had discovered that um, you could actually build a a massive business on top of the app store. Like it was not just like a few uh, gaming and uh, social networking companies, the opportunities were really exploding there. But the uh, big challenge, both for startups as well as large companies, was that I think over 90% of people who downloaded an app would either delete it or never use it. Um, So, you know, in short, the world had a really big consumer retention problem. Um, And what was happening was like all these startups even the big companies are spending a lot of money on acquiring uh, users, uh, you know, and and then not being able to figure out like how to keep them. Uh, And as a venture investor, I I would be very frustrated when I would like ask a founder or a, a product team. Uh, that, you know, initially was seeing some success or seeing a lot of downloads, why their retention was uh, not really, you know, up to the level that we would like to see it. And their short answer would be, we don't know, (laughs) right? Like we kept saying, like, maybe this, maybe that, we don't know. Um, And so I had always had a very deep desire for understanding User behavior, because I could see so many of the investments I was making were, you know, struggling with that problem and figuring out like how to easily understand what their users were trying in their first session, why were they not coming back, why were they deleting their apps, um, and at the same time, um, you know, amplitude was actually kind of discovering the same problem unbeknownst to me that, you know, there's not an easy way for this whole ecosystem to really understand uh, what drives retention, what what gets users to stick around. Um, And so it was kind of a problem that I was really passionate about. So when I was talking to uh, companies and exploring moving away from venture and taking on an operating role, uh, the problem that amplitude was focused on just resonated so much with me i said okay well i'll join i don't know what i can really do well, let's join you know i'll join as a product manager sure <laughs> but but um i have spent the last uh, four years in venture so it's uh, so i want to just come in and understand what the bottlenecks for growth in the company are and what i can do to solve them so I approached it as very much as a generalist with a founder mindset, which is I don't really care, you know, what the job description is. My goal is to come in and understand, you know, what's working, what's not working, what's the next bottleneck for growth in the company. So uh, the I would say the overall, you know, a, a few things happened. One the problem we were working on turned out to be the right one. Literally, you know, every company in the world building digital products is now prioritizing this uh, uh, issue, which is, okay, uh, we know how to acquire users. And once we figure that out, you know, we'll have some viral loops, we'll spend more on um, ads, we'll get them in. Uh, but then how do we keep them? And how do we keep like a sustained uh, relationship with our digital product? Uh, And I think the the problem turned out to be such a good one, and it aligned really well with the topic we are going to talk about, which is product-led growth, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are not relying on your sales and success teams to keep great relationships with the buyer as kind of your main retention investment, you need to invest in the product to be able to give all your end users a great experience that will retain them. Right It's almost like a completely different DNA to build in your company, uh, and amplitude ended up being one of those core products that teams that said, Hey, we need you know better consumer retention, better product led growth ended up buying saying, Hey, this will help us figure out like what's working, what's not working today mm-hmm. um so you know it was definitely very much the right place, right time um for me to develop this uh a passion and expertise around product led growth mm-hmm. um, and at, at amplitude itself honestly you know a few lo- generalized learnings and takeaways I'll share is you know one I have, we had the privilege at amplitude it now feels like a privilege of being very underhyped you know um, the we, we were not considered a hot company <laughs> we we were not you know early movers in the market we didn't have controversial founders that people like to write about we didn't accept preemptive offers at crazy valuations we just kind of really really focused on operating excellence as a company and kept our heads down focused on customers about everything else uh, and that served us incredibly well. We were able to come from behind and beat some of the other companies in the space that had started you know five years, three years before us, had a lot of the hype, had a lot of the you know unicorn valuations early in their life cycle, we were able to outcompete them and emerge as a market leader. So I think that was kind of uh, I would say one you know set of really generalized lesson, if I may um uh, share is. Uh, you know, the hype doesn't last. The only thing that lasts is enduring customer love. Like that is the mm-hmm. thing that, you know, if you don't have nothing else matters um, and, and making sure that you are building a company or that's very customer focused where you celebrate customer satisfaction and customer happiness about other things. I think it's a very important mm-hmm. lesson for founders.
1: Mm-hmm. And, What examples can you share? We're going to get into product-led growth, but I imagine that you you did a lot of product-led growth at Amplitude. Can you describe a little bit about your success with product-led growth at Amplitude?
0: Yeah, no, this is actually a very, very uh, interesting question for our company because we, at the same time, were pursuing both a product-led motion as well as a sales-led motion. Mm -hmm. So we had... um, large enterprise buyers, right? Like fortune 50 largest companies in the world uh, with whom we could not, uh, we believed we could not pursue a product led growth strategy with them because of the nature of the problem we solved, right? We are saying, Hey, give us all your customer engagement data. (laughs) Um, And if you're going to the biggest company in the world saying, hey, give us your customer engagement data, obviously they worry about security and privacy and they want to know, okay, what does you know, Amplitude do for data governance? Uh, so it's not the kind of a product and business model, and we'll talk about this uh, uh, later as well. It's not the kind of product and business model which lends itself to one user in the company making a you know, individual decision to just start sending us customer data and start using Amplitude, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't lend itself to that for big companies. And we knew from day one that we wanted to go up market, we wanted to win the enterprise segment. Um, And so uh, we assume that there is no way we can do product-led growth with enterprise. It's not going to work. And and to be fair, even today, like I would say, you know, 80%, it is the enterprise strategy is very sales-led but at the same time uh, the the companies where we had the most urgent demand for our product the most enlightened companies the ones that had the most to lose were startups right it was other startups that uh, you know had just raised a 20 million dollar round had all this money to start putting into user acquisition uh, but had a retention problem, had a monetization problem, like they had, they could see these issues starting to come up. And for them, it was, uh, you know, do or die, right? Unlike a really big fortune 50 company where it's a new project, it's not do or die for the company. This was a pretty much like top priority. So that's where we were getting a lot of pull and we wanted to pursue a product led growth motion with them. So, you know, very early in its life cycle, Amplitude announced a free plan that was extremely generous. You could not find as generous a free plan anywhere else um, uh, that would match the amount of functionality, the event volume, and it was free forever. Like, you know, as long as you don't bump up against the event volume, which means, okay, now you're becoming a big company. You have a lot of users, so your volume is getting pretty big you could use amplitude for free forever and we considered okay. that a marketing investment okay. that was the really important strategic decision we made is that okay this is actually a marketing investment mm-hmm. we're not going to consider it anything else this is this is our main marketing investment to begin with um, and we invested in you know a, a building out a dedicated growth team fairly early on I think it was pretty unusual at the scale that amplitude was to have a dedicated growth engineering team with a dedicated growth pm fairly early on to make sure that the self serve experience of these startups that were getting started when they were small low event volume on our free plan was going to be great uh, and i think that was instrumental in amplitude breaking out early because we developed this reputation for you know if the free plan has such strong product functionality what does the enterprise plan have? Right, yeah. like there is a lot of curiosity and buzz.
1: Can I ask a quick question there? Because uh, we had we had a similar discussion recently with um with HubSpot. Kieran from HubSpot said that he gave the example of Evernote, where you could give away too much, and in some cases, if the free plan is so generous, then. Um, well, maybe maybe you're just leaving money on the table because people will stay on that free plan and get a lot of value forever. How do you determine where to draw that line that where where people are going to bump up into the into the ceiling of the free plan and then eventually upgrade?
0: That's a great question. Um, so for us, uh, we didn't need to gate functionality too hard for uh, three reasons. One, uh, we could gate on uh, just volume, right? Like, how many users are you tracking using Amplitude? And, as, and if you are only tracking a few thousand users, you are a very small company. We, you know, it's it's not worth our uh, anyone's effort, like trying to monetize you because you are such a small company right now, and we want you to grow. Um, so that was one. Two we had an extremely strong engineering team. So we built product depth very, very early. So we had the option of being super generous with functionality because we had built so much early. Uh, So that that was, again, like a privilege. And, uh, you know, even today, like the engineering team is very strong, very deep, very tight-knit. Uh, And the third reason was strategic, which is, you know, unlike a HubSpot, if you look at the uh, customer analytics ecosystem, there is a very strong free alternative, right? Which is Google Analytics slash Firebase for mobile. And as long as there is a very strong free alternative in your uh, competitive landscape, trying to monetize SMBs, I think it's a very poor strategy long term. Because when push comes to shove, these are you know such cash-constrained companies, they're going to say, you know what, let's just... They'll we'll fall back they'll... on Google Analytics. Yeah, go... yeah. They'll fall back on the free solution they have continued to keep instrumented in case they can't afford to spend money anymore, right? So... Because there is and that's not true for CRM. There isn't really like a, oh this is like an always free good enough CRM that you can fall back on. I think that's not really true. So it makes sense for HubSpot to have an SMB strategy and like build around that. But uh, we you know debated this a lot because all of our competitors had SMB plans. But we debated this a lot and said look, um, we will cherry pick the SMBs that we want to monetize. Like we don't want to monetize every small business. We want to earn their goodwill, give them a lot of great functionality. And if they are succeeding as a business, they'll naturally bump up against event limits and become paying customers. If they're not succeeding as a business, we don't want to charge them. We want to wait till they grow. Uh, And because, you know, all that will do is create a high churn segment for us, right? So Mm -hmm. what we did was we said, okay, we are going to cherry pick based on volume. And if the SMB is succeeding, they become a paying customer. And we have built like fairly automated systems to support them and have a strong retention even in that segment. But we'll only cherry pick the top of the SMB market as opposed to trying to monetize everyone else. Now this decision also ended up helping us a lot on the enterprise side, which was some which was a surprise. And I remember doing this analysis once where I was looking at, okay, of all the companies we've had in our free plan that have, uh, you know, either like not really grown into organically grown into uh, an enterprise plan, right? So for example, not every company was DoorDash. DoorDash was really small, started on our free plan, became one of our biggest customers. Uh, but um, most companies don't do that. So we did this analysis to see okay, what happens to all these free users who churn? What's happening? And to a very large extent, it was oh, their startup shut down, right? So they don't use us anymore. The startup doesn't exist anymore. But there were two other things happening. One was that these people were actually going and um, starting new jobs in big companies where often they would bring Amplitude with them. They would say, you know, whatever you are using right now, I know a free solution that is 10 times better than this. So you guys really need to talk to Amplitude. Let's use Amplitude instead. So we had all these ambassadors from the free plan whose startups had not succeeded, but they were in other companies, uh, you know, creating inbound pipeline for our sales team. Uh, And the second thing that was happening was uh, acquisitions. We had a lot of these small startup teams get acquired by larger companies that would then start investing in their product and, again, become inbound pipeline for us for, a, for like a bigger agreement of, you know, Venmo, PayPal was a good example. Um, and then last but not the least, our free plan was also being used by agencies. So if you think about kind of the more traditional Fortune 100 companies that are you know, on the quote unquote digital transformation path, they often work with like growth marketing agencies to figure out how to infuse that DNA into their company, right? Because they haven't done this before. Their product managers haven't worked in Silicon Valley. They're not sure whether their playbook is best practice. So they get a lot of help from consulting firms. And often those consulting firms would just you know, put the data on our free plan and get going because they needed to be able to surface opportunities to their clients and say, these are the things you haven't built. These are the places people are dropping off. Here's where you have a retention problem. And they couldn't do that without being able to do a great analysis. So they would leverage our free plan, right? So suddenly you'd be like, oh, there is a massive streaming company's data set on our free plan. We should probably talk to them, see what we can do to help. And so there were all these like really happy surprises in our analysis of how the free plan was supporting both the product-led motion as well as the sales-led motion um, that, you know, really gave us the confidence to continue investing in it a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. And now you're, you've are you been with Unusual VC for about a year. Is that is that right? That's right. And I just have to ask, about, first of all, about, about the name and I, I dug in and and I found that there's something called the unusual method. Can you just describe this unusual branding of a venture capital firm and how you all are differentiating?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, if you talk to seasoned investors, um, in the venture ecosystem, traditionally people have said, look, um, Getting to product market fit is the founder's problem. Like that's what they do. You know, once they have product market fit, money can help, right? You can you oh, yeah. use money to like acquire more customers, acquire more, you know, hire more employees, scale the business. But sometimes like the money is not what makes the difference when you're trying to find product market fit. There's like a certain black magic that founders <laughs> need mm-hmm. to perform. So what Unusual Ventures believes is that like, no, we can actually deconstruct a lot of that black magic. And as Mm -hmm. long as you have a product vision, we can help you get to product market fit. As long as you have a strong vision, you have a talented founding team. Um, So our fund was started by two industry veterans in enterprise software. John Riones, who was previously a GP at Lightspeed, uh, and was the seed investor in App Dynamics, started by Jyoti Bansal, and who is now his co-founder in Unusual Ventures. Uh, and the two of them, you know, saw this kind of uh, theme where uh, every fund as it got successful kind of went up market, right? So you have a successful fund, you now start doing a hundred, two hundred million dollar Series D rounds, you become a five billion dollar fund. And most of your critical resources get focused on the large rounds because that's where most of your dollars have gone. That's where your responsibility now is. So that's what makes unusual. Unusual is you're going to continue being seed focused. Even though we have a $400 million fund, we focus on like the $5 million seed round exclusively as like what is our, our top priority. We invest very early. Like you could literally have Mm -hmm. just started your company yesterday and we will invest. Mm -hmm. We don't look for revenue. We look for product vision. We look for an amazing founding team. That's it. And then once we invest, we actually have a, a really deep founder services platform that will come deconstruct the process of getting to product market fit with you and help you do all the things that founders struggle to make time for, right? Whether that's uh, more outreach, getting more feedback, help with hiring right now because it's just such a competitive market. So we have this bench of founder services that spans everything from recruiting, product design, sales, marketing, community development, and, you know, what we do is we kind of complement the founder DNA. So if the founders have like super strong engineering product and design DNA, we mm-hmm. will uh, bring in, uh, you know, some amazing talent around sales and marketing for six months into the company so that they think about product market for, from day zero instead of saying, okay, first we will build and then we will see who wants to buy this. <laughs> Right. Yeah. so that traditional model makes finding product market fit way harder. What we do is have a very iterative method, which is what we call the unusual method, of taking a strong product vision and helping founders get to product market fit. And that's what our field guide is all about. Like that's what we write about, like what is you know we break down the black magic and explain the process. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know that's why we chose the name unusual is because, We've we have made a bunch of decisions that are fairly different and contrarian. You know, we're very, very hands-on investors in a in a, uh, a market where uh, most uh, of the in, most investors pride on being hands-off and just kind of move fast. Uh, we're going back to kind of traditional venture, which is much more focused on company building, and you know, we only do a very hand small handful of deals a year.
1: Great, and th- this fuel guide. Um, I've been looking through it, and I know you're a major contributor to it. I mean, this is this is such a comprehensive resource. I, I rarely see this this type of thing being offered just for free on on the website of a VC. It seems like that you all are also so you're getting a really early stage company with a strong team and a strong product vision. You try to take them to product market fit, and clearly, as I read through the fuel guide. I'm looking at uh, the section about product-led growth and there's something called nail your self-serve product. This was, this was written by you. Um, So it seems as though you're also looking for products that lend themselves, lend themselves to product-led growth when you're making the investment decision. Is that true? And then, and how do you assess whether or not if a product is still in a very early stage, whether or not it can, it can succeed with a, with a PLG motion?
0: Uh, great question. So not everything we do um, look is product-led growth. So it's definitely mm-hmm. a big focus for me since I'm um, uh, that's my background, that's mm-hmm. where I can help founders the most. So it's a really, really important focus for me, but it's not 100% of what we invest in. Um, and, and, you know, really great question you asked is that early, you know, how do you know? So, you know, I, I think there's a few things that we look for. We can't know 100% for certain, but I, I could get to like 80% certainty just based on the problem that the company is going to try and solve. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. maybe they will end up having to pivot because you know, that problem wasn't the right problem and they, uh, you know, they have built some technology that works you know, for other problems and they end up pivoting. But assuming that they don't pivot, that the problem they have identified is the right one, which we usually have a lot of conviction around because we do very thematic investing. We start with the problem and we say, okay, these are the problems where we see a lot of change happening in the industry. There are massive market tailwinds. Are there any great founders focused on solving this problem? Right now, based on the problem, uh, I have like a simple framework to understand, Okay, does this problem lend itself to a product led growth motion? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also look for founders that lend themselves to building a product-led growth company. You know, I think founder market fit is a very, very important necessity. A lot of founders underestimate that. Uh, and if you want to be the founder of a product-led growth uh, motion-based uh, company, uh, you need to have you know, way stronger product and marketing DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Than the average founding team, maybe which has you know much stronger engineering DNA and acquires sales DNA. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know st- take a step back to like 20 years ago, the traditional enterprise software seed investment wasn't just a strong engineering team, right? Like mm-hmm. three founders, great engineers, and it's easy to infuse sales DNA into the company at the right time, where you know you have early sense of product market fit. You hire a great VP sales. Now they build out the sales team, revenue is a function of the sales team's headcount, right? That was the mm-hmm. old model. But, and so sales and engineering were like the strengths you looked for. Now, not to say that those uh, you know, don't matter uh, for uh, product-led growth companies, they continue to be important, but you need to be stellar when it comes to product as separate from engineering, because it's more focused on UX than functionality itself. And you need to be stellar at marketing because you know it's great if you have an amazing self promotion. Doesn't move the needle if no one has heard of you and no one is on your website, right? So yeah. I think the, the founder DNA is also something we look for. But going back to your question of like, how do you know that this is um, uh, this lends itself to product led growth? So we kind of like I look for kind of three big questions when I'm doing research on the problem. Uh, so my first question is: Okay, for this problem, can customers have more than one solution, right? And that's really mm-hmm. important because if you want to do product-led growth, you have to assume there's some status quo in the company, right? So they are they. Uh, hopefully, this is a problem they already have. Otherwise, there's never going to be any budget to solve it. And if it's a problem they already have, they're solving it differently right now. They either have people manually solving the problem or they have some legacy system they are using, but they are solving the problem in some way, whether it's broken or not. And that means that if you want to do product-led growth, a small team or an individual in a big team is able to choose a different solution for the same problem and try it out right? A lot of problems just don't lend itself to that. Like you you just can't do it, right? Uh, My favorite example of this is Carter from our portfolio. Carter Mm -hmm. is cap table management. You cannot have multiple solutions for this in a company. There's only going to be one equity management solution your company is using at any time and the CEO is going to pick it, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you have the most amazing self-serve onboarding experience, it doesn't matter. You have to make this a top-down sale that goes through the CEO. You have to handhold them through the onboarding so they don't choose the wrong options and they are setting up their equity structure. It's not the kind of problem that lends itself to a, to a free plan, it it just isn't. So I think the that was kind of you know at least in, in the early days of the company. So that is my first question: Is can there be multiple solutions? Can a team use its own solution for this problem? Because then we we can we can get started. And then if someone has a prototype or kind of like an early um, understanding of um, the uh, you know what the solution could be, I also look for like okay. Can an end user quickly experience an aha moment without any help, right? So, uh, for example, suppose you know uh, the product is meant for an account executive, a salesperson, right? But the only way they can use it is um, they need to go to the sales ops team, get permissions to like a Salesforce sandbox. And then you have to point the software to the sandbox, and then you can mm-hmm. do the trial. It's not good. It's, you don't have a product-led motion in the early days, yeah. right? So the salesperson needs to be able to try it without help. The, I, I
1: read in, in, the, in the field guide that the time your recommended time to AHA, the TTA, so to speak, is around 15 minutes. I thought that was very interesting. That's very fast. Any particular reason why um, 15 minutes is the, uh, the ideal Obviously time, there, to- roughly?
0: Obviously, you know it's it's not super scientific, it's yeah. anecdotal, and, and yeah. we wanted to use it as a forcing function because I think what we have found is that, and this is based a little bit on my research with amplitude, if you think about like session length for a product, right? Like mm-hmm. how much time is someone willing to invest in you before they decide, no, this is not going anywhere. This is too mm-hmm. much work. And yeah. maybe I will try this next week. And, yeah. and that and you have already lost them there like so it's, it's more it's so about
1: really just human psychology and attention spans yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Especially so yeah if you could argue
1: kicking the tires yeah
0: yeah. So you could argue, you know, it's actually 10 minutes or 20, you know, we picked 15 mm-hmm. more as like a framework and a forcing function. And the po- more broad point is it has to be low, low double digits. Like it's not, yeah. that is the attention span you have for how much time someone will invest before they evaluate. Am I getting anything out of this time? And it's right? very much, so,
1: it sounds like it's a session. Um, It has to be in that first session. Um, yeah. Because yeah. if they, if they play around in that first session, they don't, they don't quite get the aha moment, they're probably never coming back, right? Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, the good news is the aha moment doesn't have to be, oh, I have fully implemented your product. Like that's, that's not what it is about at all. It's about having a moment of joy that clearly, if I continue investing in this product, here's an example of what I'm going to get out of it. And it needs to be show, not tell. You know, it can't be just like, if you read my website, you have aha moment. No way, right? So I think what you need to do is break it down. So that's what kind of the uh, field guide um, uh, does on this topic. It breaks down, okay, here's kind of six different ways that you could get to an aha moment that's not your fully implemented product, right? Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite examples of this is uh, from our portfolio is Webflow where they the, the, the aha, your first aha moment is when they show you templates. So you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I want to build a website. And suddenly they're like, oh, what do you want to do? Do you want to do an e-commerce website? Do you want to do a blog? Here's a lovely portfolio of beautiful templates that you can just click, mm-hmm. implement automatically, and then start wow. editing to make your own. Mm-hmm. So you get to that aha moment without even having to invest in learning how to use Webflow yet. Like they are giving you that aha moment before yeah. they're asking you to invest any real time, which is the perfect kind of product-led growth opportunity.
1: Especially, I think what you mentioned with templates, if, if the company, uh, if there's an opportunity to templatize that product-led growth experience, and then you can even eventually form a community around those templates and have the community of users submitting to a gallery then that's just that's amazing but i mean that's a little bit of a side topic but the ability to templatize products and get the community involved is also huge i
0: think absolutely um Mm -hmm. so i think so those are some of the things we look for before there is any product and that's what i also Mm -hmm. challenge founders to do i say you know you don't have to wait till your product is built to understand what will be the right go-to-market strategy for you. Like the problem Mm -hmm. and what your customer status score is should tell you what the right go-to-market strategy is. And the competitive landscape should tell you what the go-to-market strategy is. So even as you are building the prototype and MVP of your very first product iteration, you need to optimize for the go-to-market strategy that you believe will work and test whether it will work. You can't separate those two out. You can't say, you know, if you want to do product-led growth, you can't say, I will first build and then I will see how go-to-market will work. Like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the failure mode for most startups. Mm -hmm. It worked in the past. If you were just doing top-down selling, you build, build, build until you have enough. And then you hire a sales team and say, please go sell. Let's figure out what price point um, we can get, but not for PLG. I think last but not the least, and you know, this is also a really important one. You can you can do um, before there is a product is uh, is this a problem? Is this a real problem for smaller companies? You know, because there are some problems that are only actually big company problems. Like you don't face them. So, for example, you know, like really complicated uh, vendor procurement solutions, right? Mm-hmm where uh, you have a big company that needs to go through a very uh, uh, thorough procurement process, security uh, review to be able to buy software, that's a big company problem. And if you are taking on a big company problem, you are unlikely to have a very successful PLG motion because the end user you're trying to reach will have to do their own security review on any software they bring into the company. Right. so yeah. so that is the other question to ask is like is this problem a you know mid to small size company problem as well so can you yeah. get started there can you build momentum there or is this only really a big company problem and not like, and slapping, yeah. <laughs> I have I have a fun <laughs> an-
1: anecdote there because I was at Google for a couple of years and right. I was coming from the, my my own agency and then I went into Google and I wanted to start. I wanted to keep testing out SaaS products like I was so used to doing. And I, I, I just hit a firewall. I, I was not allowed to sign up for anything, to trial anything. I couldn't install anything on the laptop. It was so locked down. And so, yeah, PLG. If, if, if somebody's trying to sell use PLG to get people who work for Google, just forget it. I mean, not gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I think so 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 the I think what's really cool is that you know this is a framework a founder can use too to decide am i working on a problem that is going mm-hmm. to lend itself to plg right before yeah. they start pitching all the investors about how they are going to do product led growth they need to really think about like is the problem the right problem for it and if it's not, that's fine. There are, you know, lots of great companies being built even today that uh, largely have a top-down enterprise selling model. Mm-hmm. Um, it. What's more important is, you know, product market and founder fit. Like all three need to be a really, really good fit, and you can build a great business. Yeah, let's talk.
1: Let's talk about the marketing in particular because. Let's imagine now that that the product market fit has been established and it's time to start scaling. Marketing's purpose is to is to really bring in free users into the top of that funnel. What are some of the best strategies that that you've seen and, and that your portfolio companies are utilizing that might not be the obvious ones like, you know, Google Ads and Facebook Ads, and what is your approach to advising companies about doing marketing very efficiently so that you can acquire. You're acquiring a free user and only a portion of those people are going to pay you. So there's the economics of LTV and CAC. Can you just talk to me about the acquisition side of it?
0: Yeah. So in the early days, uh, when your company is still small and you have a small user base, we mm-hmm. encourage people. It's not that you are not spending on marketing. So first of all, like I hate it when founders are like, oh, we have all this traction and we spend $0 on marketing. I'm like, no, how much time did you spend? Like, Are you costing... You know, you, you you have a team with an right. organic organic marketing strategy. The fact that you haven't spent on advertising doesn't mean you have zero marketing. Actually, yeah. don't like it when people say of, they have spent zero on marketing. I a like, lot of no, founders uh,
1: and and I've had people on the show too. They they present that like a badge of honor. Look how right. far we've come with 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 doing zero advertising. Yeah.
0: I would rather hear someone say, uh, hey, we did spend a little bit on ads to learn the answers to these three questions. These were the answers. And then most of our strategy is organic, right? I think in yeah. the early days, having figuring out your organic strategy is so much more important than uh, the paid strategy. And uh, any paid strategy you want to pursue will be so much more efficient when you have already yeah. built a brand, right? The brand recognition mm-hmm. goes such a long way. So that's the simple, like, you know, day zero answer is, okay, what is the right organic strategy for this customer and this founding team? Some founding teams uh, have, you know, one or more like eva- community evangelists in them, right? W- which is that this is they are selling uh, the problem they are solving and the software they are selling is in a community that they have been a part of forever, uh, they are well known, they like to write, they like to speak. And then we take a, you know, what, what uh, we now call a founder brand approach. Like, like let's mm-hmm. invest in building a great brand around this founder with a lot of content and different formats. We're all focused on educating the ecosystem on this problem and what's the right way to solve it. Um, if that is not an option your know, founders are not evangelists then we take more of a community led approach where we say okay who are people in the community that are super passionate about this already and how do we mm-hmm. make up make them a part of the conversation mm-hmm. but basically i think for us the two important investments is uh, a like build a community around the problem especially if you're creating a new category of software very important Mm-hmm. And two, invest like your marketing needs to be about education and evangelism. Like that is, you know, all mm-hmm. you are doing is helping the community um, improve, like how they do their jobs, improve their career prospects, educate them, mm-hmm. uh, and that is like the marketing strategy you have if you want to do product-led growth, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's all about helping them understand why this product matters, how it will help them address problems they have in their life and how to use the product the best possible way. So it's a very education-first strategy, and we focus entirely on, you know, it's going to be organic. The only question is, how do we execute?
1: Mm-hmm. How do you balance the timelines between a, a startup who is who has a really great, either they have a, a great recognizable founder that you can build a brand around, or they might also be on their way to a, a great community, or maybe both. But, you know, that might take one or two years, Versus another, the other side of it, which is that they really have a great paid acquisition funnel that is delivering a very, very uh, precise and scalable customer acquisition cost that looks very good. And that delivers like pretty much immediately. I mean, you put, you put a dollar in and you get three back. How do you balance those different time horizons? Because you want them to have a healthy mix of paid acquisition and organic acquisition, but the organic is going to take one or two years. The paid could be could be three months.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we have the benefit of being very patient, long-term investors. So, you know, we come at mm-hmm. this from a very strong point of view, which is, you know, if you have to trade it off, we will always pick the organic investment because okay. even though it takes longer to deliver, when it does deliver, you have way better ROI. And mm-hmm. it also creates leverage, right? Like the YouTube video you recorded today might be the main source of inbound for you in three years because of seo because of the maturity right so like you have to Mm -hmm. if you invest in it early um, and everything is working the uh, success you can get from it later is like an order of magnitude better so because we are such long-term investors you know as opposed to if you're bootstrapped Maybe you choose something very different, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if you're a bootstrapped company that needs to optimize for short term PL, you might choose something different. You might say, okay, I actually have a very, you know, I know my CAC, I know my Mm -hmm. payback period. I'm just Mm -hmm. going to do this right now. I don't know, I can't invest in organic because it's a long shot. Like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Yeah, a
1: lot of the, uh, a lot of the, SaaS early stage SaaS companies that we talk to they seem to be more focused on paid acquisition because I believe the pressure the pressure that's on them right their their runway the runway is limited and they can they can see that we've got to get this we've got to get this plane uh, up into the air uh, pretty quickly and paid at least gives you the yeah, at least gives you well, that feedback very uh, fast. Yeah, whether it's working. I think to
0: your point, it's all about stage. Like because we invest on day zero, we have the luxury of saying, you know, let's build this foundation right away.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one other question about paid that I'm curious, and I want to link this to what we were talking about earlier about the the time to aha. If the time to aha is about fifteen minutes, and that aha moment is something that can be measured and it can be actually measured in a way where it can become the conversion event not the acquisition of the trial but the aha moment have you seen any of your of your portfolio companies actually redefining that conversion event and then telling say google or facebook that now we want to optimize for that aha moment instead of just simply um, d- the free trial acquisition where there's yeah. going to be an inherent like 50 60% churn rate
0: Yeah, so I have some of our best growth leaders actually do that, where instead Mm -hmm. of just relying on like, oh, this ad got me these many clicks, Mm -hmm. uh, they'll use the social media platforms, API's. To ping back the conversion event and say, no, I want to optimize the campaign that actually got me the best converted users. I don't care about clicks; I care about this.
1: Yeah, so right. it needs
0: a little bit of uh, investment to make sure that you have the right data in and out. That's on. Oh, mm-hmm. no, sub- everything ends up being about data, but uh, once you do that, it's such a you know way more effective way to scale your company kind of pa- after your first few thousand users
1: yeah yeah i I think that this is really the next frontier uh when cookies go away that uh right. first party data and these kind of signals are gonna be yep. uh, all important
0: yeah yeah well which uh, I honestly think, is something I'm personally rooting for as a cookie user
1: <laughs> yeah i yeah i think i'm I'm definitely rooting for it as well well, I think that we've uh we we could talk for hours about this uh but Sandia, I really appreciate your time. And i um, looking forward to staying in touch and all the best. The, the, the Unusual Ventures is really fascinating. If anybody wants to go and check out the field guide, um, please do that. It's unusual.vc and you'll find the field guide, which is um, authored, a large part of that's been authored by, by Sandia. So thanks very much for being with me. Hope you have a great day. And you do, uh, Baris, look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you so much. All right. All right,
0: bye. bye.
1: Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.